Okay. All right, so we got our Bibles. We're in Psalm 139. I think that's all I've got to tell you. And um, I want to I want to get into this this um, this wonderful passage here in a moment. So if you go to the Southwest United States, here we are. Uh, but there is a tourist attraction. I don't know if you've been there or not. Um, that attracts thousands of people every year. Uh, they don't go to see a. Uh, a natural wonder or any kind of monument that, you know, uh, creation has given us. In fact, it's a man-made monument that people uh, love to go to. And it's a monument that's only about this big, uh, but it sits in the ground and it was placed there by the Department of Interior, the Bureau of Land Management. And of course, what I'm talking about, if you've been there, it's this place that's known as Four Corners. And Four Corners is the exact intersection of what? Of Utah and Colorado and Arizona and New Mexico. They, they intersect at a point. So what do people do? They go there and they put, you know, a left foot, right foot, left hand, right hand, right. They put them down and like, look at me, this is awesome. I'm in four places at one time, right? There's something about us that we really want this, this feeling that, man, it's so great to be able to say, I can sort of stretch the bounds of reason and I can be in these different places at one time. And technology, in some manner, has allowed us to do that. I mean, even you know, modern travel, I can travel over international borders. And if for a second, you know, mysteriously, I'm in one and, and both, right? In my seat on the airplane or driving. Last year, Tucker was in school and we'd FaceTime together. But one of the things... That, that, that bothers you about that is that you want to be present with that person. A video image of them isn't good enough. You want to actually be in their presence. And what this reminds us of is that, yes, Four Corners is cute. Four Corners is something we like to Instagram. It's a great moment. Like, look at me. And yet we all know, we all intuitively know that we are embodied creatures, Right? That is that our souls are tethered to our bodies and we can't be in more than one place at one time. We are stuck in one place at one time and we can go no different. And this is one of the things when we talk about meet our maker and as we discuss the attributes of God, this is one of those areas where we see how utterly different God is from us because God, the Bible doesn't use this word, but one of the things the Bible teaches is that God is, is omni, omni, present. That is omni, all, present, you know, here, right? He's always, he's everywhere. There's nowhere that God isn't. So I want to talk to you about this today, that God is omnipresent. He's everywhere. But let's start with um, a definition, all right? What does it mean when we say God is omnipresent? Well, let's say it this way. God does not, I'm gonna unpack this a little bit. God does not have size or spatial dimension and is present at every point of space and time with his whole being. Yet, God manifests himself differently in different places. Okay, so there's our definition, kind of our working definition. And what I'm gonna say to you, I didn't make this up. This is, this is, if you will, trying to put our arms around everything the, the Bible says about God's presence. So I'm gonna try to sort of tick this off a little bit at a time and show you six things that sort of emerge out of this definition that we see in scripture, okay? And the first thing is this, God is present everywhere. He's everywhere. Now that may seem obvious, maybe you grew up in church, but here's what I mean. God inhabits every point of space. He's everywhere. There is nowhere that God is not. So listen to how the prophet Jeremiah says this. 
Okay, he's prophesying. This is the Lord speaking. And he says this, am I a God at hand, declares the Lord, and not a God far away? Can a man hide himself in secret places so that I cannot see, declares the Lord. Do I not fill heaven and earth, declares the Lord. So he's saying, look, there's nowhere that you can go. Now, what's happening in Jeremiah 23? The prophets had sort of bought in the lie from the surrounding culture that God is like every other God, and he's this territorial God. And if you move beyond the territory of God's jurisdiction, then prophecies can go out that God doesn't know about. And God's saying, that's not me. That's not the God you serve. I'm Yahweh, right? I'm, I'm this God that transcends every boundary. So yes, I'm here, but I'm also a God far off and there's nowhere you can hide from me. But now look how he says it to David. I had you turn to Psalm 139, go down to verse seven and let's start reading there. This is absolutely amazing. In fact, in verse six, David's going to say, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot contain it. Listen to this. Where shall I go from your spirit or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you're there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there, your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be not even darkness is not dark to you and the night is bright as the day for darkness is as light to you. What point is David making? He's simply saying this, there's not one place I can go in the universe that you're not already there, that you have not gone before where I can hide from you. So, so if you're the first person to visit the planet Mars, God's already there. If you can travel beyond where the Hubble Space Telescope can see, God's already there. There is no place that God is not. He's everywhere. So that leads me to the second thing. Not only is God everywhere, God is fully present everywhere. Now here's, here's the difference of what I'm saying, right? If I go to four corners and you and I go and I put a, a left foot in, uh, let's say in uh, Colorado and the right, the right foot in Colorado, the left foot in Utah and the right hand in Arizona and the left hand in New Mexico, then I can say, wow, look at me. I'm at four places at once, but I'm not really, am I? I'm spread over them. And this is not God. God is not spread like some gaseous material over his creation. He is everywhere fully present. In fact, go back to Psalm 139. Look at how it says this. Where shall I go from your spirit or where shall I flee from your presence? And now listen to me. This is how it reads in Hebrew. And I'm not trying to impress you, but listen to this. If I ascend to heaven, you, if I make my bed in Sheol, you, all of you, God, you're there. Every part of you is in that place. I cannot escape it. And wherever I go, there you are and you are fully present. God does not have a left foot on Jupiter and a right foot on Jersey. You follow me? He's everywhere, fully everywhere. This is like, like I know, like your brain's about to crack. I can't imagine but this is what the Bible's gonna tell us about God. He's not like us. He's totally different. But that leads us to a third thing. God doesn't have, now follow me, I'm gonna get kind of 
technical here. God doesn't have spatial dimensions, okay? We, the Bible says God is a spirit. It speaks about God so we can understand using, let me use a really big word here, anthropomorphic terms, meaning terms that sound like humans, talks about his nostrils, his hands, his feet, all these things, so that you and I have some sense of what we're talking about here. But he doesn't have hands or feet or spatial dimension. In fact, let's say it this way, God cannot be confined in any space. That's not possible to do to God. So, so for example, Solomon. Solomon's gonna build this temple, right? Ostensibly for God. And he builds this grand temple that would have been one of the ancient wonders of the world. People could see it for miles, gleaming in the sun. Oh, that's the house of the Lord. And Solomon goes and he dedicates it, throws this huge party, prays his prayer to God. And in, and in chapter, uh, 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 27, listen to this. He says, but will God indeed dwell on the earth? Now he's gonna answer his question. Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you, much less this house that I have built. God, you can't be contained. I know we talk about the church as God's house, but I hope you understand that's not possible. God, is God here in this room? Yes. Is he contained in this room? No. Is God here in uh, uh, San Gabriel Valley? Is he contained? No. Is God here in America? But is he contained? No. Is God here in the world? But is he contained? No. Is God here in the universe? But is he contained? No. In fact, in Acts chapter seven, listen to this, yet the most high does not dwell in houses made by hands. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne, the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me? So listen, this ought to rid us of the notion that you have to go to some, that so, let's say it this way, somewhere, some places have a special presence of God. But the way you get into God's presence is you have to go to certain anointed, holy places. Now, Listen, I, I, we'll talk about church all day long and why this is important, what you're doing here and why this is a non-negotiable of the Christian faith, but you understand God is no more present here than he is in a stable. He's no more present in a barn than he is in a cathedral because he's present everywhere, fully present everywhere. And he's not contained in even the most massive spaces. But here's the fourth thing. God is not contained, therefore, in creation. Now, here's what I want to I combat here. Okay, God and his creation are distinct. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to fight a heresy here. Um, and it's a heresy that we would call pantheism. Maybe you've heard this word before. Pan means all. Theism is the word kind of, it's, it's God. It's a belief it's a belief, so the ism is the belief, right? I believe that God is everything. Everything is God. That's pantheism. That's not Christianity. That, that is so far away from Christianity because Christian, the Bible's going to teach us that God is not, God is he and we are we. I am, I am not God, he is not me. God is not the chair and the sun and the tree and your dog, He's God. And in fact, the Bible's going to explicitly tell you not to talk like that. Because what will happen is this. You'll begin to worship the creature. You'll be a begin to worship the creation rather than the creator. 
So Paul's going to say, for what can be known about God is plain to us because God has revealed it to us for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the fangs that have been made. So they're without excuse for all they knew God. They did not honor him as God, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were dark and claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. We don't do that. I don't go out and worship the beach or the whales or another human being. God's distinct. God's separate. He's in it, but he's not it. Does that make sense? Like, let, me, let me illustrate. Like, like if I took a sponge and I dropped it in water, the sponge would soak up the water. But you and I are bright enough to know that if I hold that, I don't say, aha, look it, the water became a sponge. No. I wouldn't say the water's a sponge, the sponge is the water. I'd say, no, they're separate, right? There is, a, there is water mixed and merged in ways that I can't ex- extract, but it's there, it's in there. Now that, 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 that breaks down in some ways when I'm talking about God, but at least that gives you the picture of that God is in everything, but he is not everything. You gotta understand that or we fall into some terrible traps. But here's the other thing. This is pretty mind-blowing. God is always present. Now, here's what I mean, and this is how it's different from what I've said before. What I mean by that is when we talk about omnipresence, yes, we're talking about the presence of God, but we could also say he is omnipresent in the sense that for God, everything, all of time, God is not constricted by time the way we are. So everything for God is fully present. I wanna show you this in a minute. So you might think of it this way. If we live, and I'll do it from this side to this side for you. Like if we live from birth to death in a linear fashion, the Bible's gonna talk about God as though he sits above this line and can see everything as though it were right now. This is pretty mind-blowing. That's why I say God's not like us. And that's a really good thing, as Jen Wilkins says. So, so, so what's happening there? See, see um, God has a vivid, totally clear view of every place and all of human history all at once. You and I don't have that, do we? Like Michelle and I went to Ireland last year. That's just, it was amazing. Like meeting the church planters over there, but going and seeing the things we saw, we saw a castle and guess what? I don't remember its name. And we went to places, I don't remember their names. In fact, what I need, sometimes I'm like, oh, I'll never forget Ireland. And yet I forget things all the time. So guess what? I, there's pictures that sort of rotate, like probably you do on your computer. Oh, there's that. Oh, look at that. Oh, I forgot about that. Oh, I don't even know where that is. I'm not even sure what I'm looking at right now, other than I think it's in Ireland. Not so with God. So, so listen how uh, Moses says this, Psalm 90 Verse four says this, for a thousand years, okay, think of the linear, thousand years in your sight are, are but as yesterday when it's past or as a watch in the night. Now, let me unpack that for you. 
So God, now look at, we're not supposed to think literal thousand years. That's the Bible's way of talking about long, long, long periods of time. God looks down this long, long, long period of time and says, I look at it as though it happened yesterday, but even more so, he looks at it and says, it's like it's, the watch in the night is like a three or four hour time period. So I bet if I said to you, hey, tell me what's happened in your life since uh, you got up this morning. Right? You'd probably have a pretty good recollection, right? You could walk me through almost every detail in pretty good fashion of your day. This is what it's trying to get out when it talks about this, about God. He looks down on human history and goes, I see it all like it is eternally present. It's right there in front of my eyes. But we don't have that, so we need reminders, don't we? This is why we scrapbook. This is why we journal. This is why we keep albums, because forever we're looking back, right? And pictures of our kids. Oh my gosh, I forgot about that outfit. Oh my gosh, I forgot when we did that. And God doesn't need that. In fact, listen to how Peter says it. Second Peter chapter three. Now, now here's what Peter's gonna do. He's gonna quote Moses, but he's gonna add something. It says, with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as a day. Now the thousand years as one day comes from Moses, but this is new. The Lord, one day is as a thousand. So it's like one short period of time lasts forever. Here's God above time. And one long period of time, it's like it's right now. So everything is eternally present. We could say, different use of the word, but we could say God is omnipresent. He experiences time in a qualitatively different way than you and I do, but he sees it totally vivid. Now, here's the sixth and last thing I want you to see. God can manifest his presence differently to different people and places. Now, this is really key. So some of you have maybe heard somebody say something like this, hell is the absence of God. No. Remember what David said? Where can I go from your presence? Where can I flee? If I go to heaven, you. If I go to Sheol, you. Now, now listen. God created hell. There is no place in the universe that God is not fully present. So how do we reconcile this? God's present in hell? Yes. Now here's why we, we wrestle with that. Because we think that God's presence always means benevolence, always means good things. But the other thing is that we don't recognize that God can manifest himself differently in different places to different people. Now, by the way, that should sort of resonate with you because you do the same thing. I do the same thing. Now, I'm not saying I'm omnipresent, but here, follow me for a second. My kids are here watching me preach. Okay, so they, they watch dad preach. And, and if you talk to them, I hope what you'd hear them say is that the guy you see up there on stage, that really is my dad. He's not a different person at home. But they would also say, there are things about my dad that you've never seen. There are characteristics that he's never manifested to you. 
You don't know him like I know him. You do that all the time. I do this all the time. And this is God. Think about it this way. So there are times when we can say genuinely God is, is, shows up in judgment and sometimes God shows up in mercy. Sometimes God is a shepherd and sometimes he's a warrior. Sometimes God comes to comfort. Other times God comes to convict. Sometimes God comes with reward and sometimes he comes to punish now, now, remember, look, look back at Psalm 139. I want to just keep drawing your attention to this. Look at how David, David says, this is unbelievable to me. I'm a child of God, and this is one of the most amazing things in the world, that if I ascend to heaven, you. If I make my bed and shield, you. If I take the wings of the morning, you. All these things, God is with me, and he's here to bless me, and he's here to help me. Now, keep that in mind. Sheol, heaven, can't flee from God's presence. That's, that's David's experience. Now listen to what happens in Amos chapter nine. Amos chapter nine, verse one, I saw the Lord standing beside the altar and he said, strike the capitals until the thresholds shake and shatter them on the heads of all the people and those who are left of them, I will kill with the sword. Not one of them shall flee away. Not one of them shall escape. Now listen to the reversal of Psalm 139. If they dig into Sheol, from there shall my hand take them. If they climb up to heaven, from there I will bring them down. If they hide themselves on the top of Carmel, from there I will search them out and take them. If they hide from my sight at the bottom of the sea, there I will command the serpent and it shall bite them. If they go into captivity before their enemies, there I will command the sword and it shall kill them. And I will fix my eyes upon them for evil and not for good. How do we explain this? That God is able to manifest himself differently in different places for different people. The Bible is going to say God manifests himself sometimes to sustain us. Always, I could say, to sustain us. Colossians chapter 1, verse 17. Paul says, he is before all things and in him all things hold together. So I'm about Christ, God in Christ. Christ is holding everything together. Do you understand? The reasons the molecules in your body do not burst apart. The reason the universe is kept together. Jesus holds it together. Hebrews chapter one, verse three says the same thing, that Jesus is continually upholding the universe by the word of his power. Stay together, universe, or it's gonna fly apart. And we get to hell. Okay, so how do we do this? Because we can say this. God's presence in hell is only one of wrath and fury, and condemnation, and punishment. That's the answer. So it's true, on the, on the one hand, right, we have, let's say it this way, you've got to be careful of saying God is more present in heaven than he is in hell. That's not true, but he is present in a different way. So that when we get to heaven, 
Revelation 21.3 says, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with men. He will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. It's going to go on and say he's going to wipe every tear from their eye. There will be no more mourning. But Jesus is going to call hell a place, an unquenchable fire, eternal torment, wailing, crying, gnashing of teeth. Because God is present in totally different ways. You see this? But sometimes, I think the problem that this doctrine creates is that sometimes we don't feel his presence, do we? God is so present, and yet we don't feel him. Now let me just say something about that, just in general that when my feelings run counter to what scripture says, then I, my feelings and experience must bow to scripture, not vice versa. Do we all understand that? I can't let my experience, I can't let my feelings override. I've got to say, this is true. I see it in scripture. I may not feel it, but my feelings are so deceptive. This doesn't mean God doesn't want you to feel his presence. It means we can't say, that's how I know God is present. I know God is present when I can feel him. Because here's where that will lead you. That will lead you to some very dark places. So, so let me give you let me, like, so, some wrong conclusions. Let me, get, let me give you some wrong conclusions where that kind of thinking, if you think, when I, I love it when I feel God, then I know he's present, and that's the only way I know he's present. Well, here's what will happen. The wrong conclusion you'll come to is, first of all, you have to conjure up God. All right? You ever done this? What I got to do is I got to sing really long, repetitive worship songs. I got to pray certain prayers. I've got to get my mind. I've got to, you know, contort my body. I've got to do all these whatever it is I've got to do. I've got to get myself to a place where finally I can say, ah, this sort of gift came out of me or something happened, and now I know God is present. No, that's not how you know God is present. You know God is present because God is everywhere and God is fully present everywhere and that's what the Bible's gonna tell you. That's how you know. I'm not saying God's against experience. God's against the gifts of the Spirit. That's not what I'm saying. But we must not calibrate our understanding of God's presence based upon what we feel in the moment. But here's a second wrong conclusion that we can come to. God wasn't there or God isn't there when... So we say things like this. You ever said this? Where was God when? Where is God now? Where was God when I was suffering? Where was God when I was abused? Where was God when my world was falling apart? Where's God when a gunman walks into an elementary school? Where's God when a tsunami or a hurricane strikes and kills hundreds of people, thousands of people? Where is he? Now look, you wouldn't be the only one to ever answer that, ask that question. Like biblical writers, the psalmists are going to say, God, why do you hide your face from me? Where are you in the midst of all this? When we begin to believe that the way I know that God is present is if I feel him, 
then I can't say with David that though the darkness, right, is, it's not dark to you, the night is bright as the day. No, I'm in darkness right now. But even though I don't feel it, God's there in the darkness. And you know where that will lead you? It could lead you about some really dark trails. Some place where you wonder with even, if even, I don't, I don't even think, I, with all the problems, all the suffering, with all the killings and the maimings, the murders, the wars, the junk that goes on in this world, how can there be a God? You Christians talk about a God who is both good and all-powerful. That God cannot exist. So you'd agree. Here's J.L. Mackey. He's an atheist philosopher. He just gives us the classic argument. Here's what he says. If a good and powerful God exists, he would not allow pointless evil. But because there is much unjustifiable, pointless evil in the world, the traditional good and powerful God could not exist. Some other God or no God may exist, but not the traditional, that is biblical God. Ever heard this? Is that true? See, here's the problem. That argument, here's what it assumes. Every time you see a tsunami hit or some natural disaster strike, some editorial in New York or LA or across the nation or around the world is gonna write something that says, aha, you Christians, where was your God when? What do we say? See, here's the problem with this argument. It assumes that because I can't see the reason behind pointless evil, it must be pointless. Do you follow what I'm saying? Because I don't, because I can't see or imagine what God might be doing in the midst of this suffering, in the midst of this pain, in the midst of this evil in the world, because I can't see it, therefore it's not true. How arrogant. I mean, he's God. I'm an idiot. I'm a worm. I have no ability. It's like a worm coming out of his, you know, slithering out of the ground. And, and because he sees just mud and chaos around him, oh, there must not be any, you know, power in the world that, that can help me. I mean, I just, hey, how can I even fathom what God is doing? Because there's not, I don't see a point then, well, there must not be a point. See, see and this is, this is the Bible's just not going to take us there. Because I can't see it, because I am, can't imagine it. It's not going to say, okay, well, then therefore it's not true. Therefore, there is no God. So you've got books. I'm so grateful for a book like Job. I mean, this week, if you don't know where Job is and you're in Psalm 139, turn back to the book right before it and read the book of Job this week. And here's what you're going to find out. Here's this godly, like, like just a, a righteous man, the way the Bible talks about Job. Like there's no reason you could think that bad things would happen to this good person. And, 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 and yet Job suffers more than you, can, uh, you and I could possibly imagine. His family is stricken down. I mean, they're gone. He comes down with disease. He loses all his wealth. Job is a shadow of the man he used to be. And he cries out for most of the book, why God? What are you doing? Where are you? And God shows up. And the incredible thing about it is that when God shows up, he doesn't go, show up and go, Job, you're right, man, I owe you an explanation. 
He shows up and says, Job, where were you? Where were you, Job, when I created the earth? Where were you when I set the boundaries of the ocean? Where were you when I did this? Where were you when I did that? And he never tells Job. Job goes to his death never knowing why, but trusting and saying, I, I had seen you, I'd heard you with my ears, now I've seen you with my eyes, and now I repent in dust and ashes. You don't owe me an explanation. You have reasons that I cannot even see. Or how about Joseph? I mean, Joseph is this man who goes through unbelievable suffering. Gets, gets, you know, he's kind of a young, arrogant jerk. He gets thrown into a well and he gets sold off into slavery and he ends up in the house of a, of a, of a wealthy man and, and the wealthy man's wife uh, is, you know, comes on to Joseph. He pushes her away and runs out and she claims that he raped her and he goes to jail for the rape. And he's rotting in jail for years and years, no doubt saying, why God, why God, why God? I love how Tim Keller sums this up. He says, if God had not allowed Joseph's suffering, years of suffering, he never would have been such a powerful agent for social justice and spiritual healing. See, isn't that the testimony of many of us in here? That you would say with Paul, you know what happened to me? My suffering produced endurance and my endurance produced character. My character produced hope. Some of you would say, what I needed most to be successful in life has been the great pain that I went through. Some of the most successful people in the world are some who have gone through the greatest pain. Let me, let me quote Tim Keller one more time. Listen to this. You'd say, where is God? Where are you, God? You'd shake your fist in the face of God. There must not be a God. And so you say this. He says, if, he says, with time and perspective, most of us can see good reasons for at least some of the tragedy and pain that occurs in life. Why couldn't it be possible that from God's vantage point, there are good reasons for all of the suffering? If you have a great and transcendent and God enough to be mad at because he wasn't there to stop evil and suffering in the world, then you have at the same moment a God great and transcendent enough to say you were there and have good reasons for allowing it to continue that I don't understand. Indeed, you can't have it both ways, right? God, you're so great, I can be angry at you. Where are you? then you have a God who can say, hey, I'm in heaven, you're on earth. My ways are not your ways. My understanding is not your understanding. I'm doing things, Chris, you'll never understand. But let me give you one last wrong conclusion that I think is the most dangerous of it all, and that's to say God doesn't see, God doesn't care, God has forgotten about my sins. Because I don't feel him, he's not really there. And the Bible says he sees everything. He sees every sin you've ever committed. He sees every moment in the present as though it's happening right now every time you sat down at the computer and looked at porn. He sees every moment that you've had a lustful thought. He sees all the secrets of your heart. He knows that you cheated on your taxes. He knows that you fudged your time card. He knows everything you've done outwardly. He knows everything you think secretly and all the sins of your heart. He knows it all. And you cannot hide from him. 
And the most damaging, dangerous conclusion of all would be because I don't feel God's presence, therefore he's not here, therefore he doesn't care, therefore he doesn't see, therefore he's forgotten. God has not forgotten one sin I or you have ever committed. Here's the difference. Everyone, every sin in the world will be punished because either it's on the back of Christ on the cross or it's me suffering forever in hell. You see what I mean? See, this is good news or bad news depending on where you stand with God. The omnipresence of God is a terror to rebels and enemies and sinners who thwart and reject God. But it is a comfort because there are right conclusions you can come to about the omnipresence of God. You can come to the conclusion where the Bible would take you that would say, Go into all the world and preach the gospel and lo, I am with you always to the end of the age. You can come to the conclusion, but I'm walking through the valley of the shadow of death, but you're with me. I'm passing through the waters, but you're with me. You could say I'm struggling with discontent and Michelle and I were talking about this week, Hebrews 13, 15, and you know what the answer to discontentment is? Know this, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. I feel like I'm in darkness. I don't know where to find the light. And he says, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is as bright as the day for darkness is as light to you. Or listen to this. I'm afflicted. I'm perplexed. I'm persecuted. I'm struck down. And Paul says this, we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. We are perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Abandoned. God hasn't left us. See, here's the deal. Like I said, it's good news or bad news. Depends on where you are. This is good news for us who are children of God, but if you've never placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, and this is terrible, this is terrifying news for you, but here's the amazing thing about the gospel. The gospel says this, God, if he stands above time and he sees it all and he's omniscient and he's omnipresent and he's there and he's watching over all of it, then guess what? God sees every one of your sins. That's terrifying until you realize that God's seen everything. He knows everything about me. He knows all the wickedness in my heart. He knows all the thoughts and evil intentions. He knows everything I've ever done and still sends Jesus to die for me. Can you imagine that? What if... What if we could play a reel of the internal motivations of your heart for everybody to see? That'd be terrifying. But you knew that at the end of it, they would love you. That's hard for us to even imagine. That's God through Jesus. And if you put your faith in him, so I'm going to give you all the righteousness of Jesus. I'm going to wipe all this out. He's going to take all your sin, all the stuff that I've seen, all the stuff I know about you to be true, Chris. He's got it all. You take his righteousness. 
and you're perfectly clean. Let's pray. So Father, thank you. What a doctrine this is that we can come to and realize that there's nothing you haven't seen. There's nowhere you haven't been, even in the midst of my sin, and yet, yet you save us. And I pray that would comfort us. I pray those of us who are children of God would be comforted by this truth. Those of us who are outside and rebels and rejected you or believing somehow that religion could save us, that God, you'd open our eyes. You'd do the work of taking out the heart of stone and putting in a heart of flesh. Give us the ability to believe that today would be a day where we would let where Jesus Christ and what he's done on the cross would cover all of those sins. We don't want to be terrified by your presence. We want to be comforted by it today. And so we love you, God. We thank you for it, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, listen.